Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. China's weak manufacturing report drags down global markets. Bank of England Governor Mark Carney signals he will drop forward guidance. Microsoft reports very strong earnings and the stock soars. And Starbucks hints that online shopping is hurting the big coffee retailer. So those stories coming up in markets. China stocks get slammed as well in New York for two basic reasons. One, the manufacturing numbers. And two, a U.S. judge has ruled that mainland units of the big four accounting firms should be banned from the United States for six months. On the Davos front, more chatter about inequality, emerging markets, and global growth. When the forecasted economic growth of two of the four BRICs is lower than the United States, you have to ask yourself, what are you doing in emerging markets? That's Ian Bremmer from the Eurasia Group. We'll hear more from him. And New New York University professor Nouriel Rabini. The worst of the crisis behind us in terms of uh, financial risk, uh, some of the tail risk of the last few years have a lower probability, risk of a Eurozone breakup, of a fiscal crisis in the U.S., of a Chinese hard landing, of war between Israel and Iran on the nuclear issue. However, I would say growth is going to improve in advanced economies, better in the U.S. and U.K., still weaker in the Eurozone and Japan. I don't think that growth this year in the advanced economy is going to be above potential. It's going to be better in the last few years, but still barely at potential. That means that we have a slack in the goods and labor market. Inflation is going to remain low, and central banks are going to be accommodated. And he talks about the difficulty in creating jobs. Well, the factors behind this rise in income and wealth inequality are complex. Uh, One of them is that technological innovation is becoming increasingly capital-intensive, skilled, biased, and labor-saving. So we have labor-shedding because of that. Two, you have globalization and trade. Three, you have 2.5 billion Indians, Chinese and Indians joining the global labor force and crowding out jobs and incomes of low-value added, labor-intensive manufacturing, and now even of white-collar jobs. So he puts it there, capital-intensive, skill-biased, and labor-saving. That's what uh, the kind of world we've created, and that is hurting jobs. He says it kind of creates also a winner-take-all effect. If you are a superstar in your own field, whether you're an economist or a journalist, or you are a political scientist or a lawyer or a banker, your market is not 10 million people, it's 7 billion people, and that leads to benefits for the top. Mm-hmm. Can we do something about it? Eventually, either we do something in terms of training, education, making people in the U.S., or Europe, Japan, or, yeah. or otherwise there will be protests and eventually backlash against globalization. <laughs> Yeah, backlash against globalization. They're impossible protests. So that's taking the, you know, five mile up look at what's happening in the world, but it's kind of fun to do so. We'll get more on that later. The Davos event, uh, event every year reveals the mood of the world's financial and political elite. And joining us from Davos will be Devin Delaney, who's co-founder of the financial website Quartz. Also, Danny Hicks from AFP will be with us. Tell us about the price of losing about three to four hundred million dollars of value has been wiped off the market cap of Manchester United, the football uh, team. And uh, so we'll be talking with Danny Hicks of AFP about that. And we'll also be looking at markets in a few minutes with Alex Wong from Ample Capital. Here's how Asian markets are doing now. Uh, The feed from Wall Street, not good. So the Nikkei down 229, 1.5% lower. The ASX 200 in Australia off 14 points. That's a a drop of a quarter of a percent. And in Seoul, the Kospi is down 6 points in 1941, a drop of of one third of one percent. I'll tell you about Wall Street in a few minutes, but pretty torrid selling there uh, as well. Dollar yen now one hundred three point four. 
Uh, the euro is at 1.3688 U.S. dollars, and the pound is now at 12 Hong Kong dollars and 90 cents, getting very close to 13. Some news flow, and then we'll bring in uh, our first guest, uh, Alex Wong. And Microsoft reported profit and revenue that topped estimates. Xbox and the cloud really helping the firm. Net income, 78 cents a share, better than the 69 cents expected. And sales were up 14%. The shares gained 5.5% in extended trading. Overall, U.S. stocks were slammed. Treasuries rose after the China manufacturing report showed contraction. Emerging Emerging markets were down, the dollar retreating, and gold and natural gas going the other direction and rising. The S&P 500 was down 0.9%, the Dow off 1.1%. However, the U.S. Treasury Secretary Jack Liu was upbeat about the U.S. economy. You know, I think the U.S. economy is, is doing much better. Uh, we ended the year strong. We start the year strong, I think, as opposed to last year when we had real headwinds from uh, budget cuts and, and other fiscal policies. We this year have tailwinds with uh, mm-hmm. kind of good fundamental economic core growth uh, in a broad range of areas. You know, the challenge we have uh, is to make sure we can keep that going and that we certainly avoid having any of the kind of self-inflicted wounds that right. we saw last year, like the government shut down in the fight over the debt limit. Starbucks reported profit of 71 cents a share compared to estimates of 69. It was 25% higher than in the same period a year ago, that profit level. But the CEO, Howard Schultz, said that sales were hurt by online shopping. He said with fewer people in the malls, Starbucks was not immune. Same store sales growth up 5% globally and in the Americas. In the China and Asia Pacific region, sales were up 8% year on year. Turkey intervened to stem its currency slump, the lira slump, and Argentina devalued the peso, sparking the steepest plunge in some 12 years. And Bloomberg's China index was down 3.5% in New York. Against that backdrop, we say good morning to Alex Wong, Director of Asset Management at Ample Capital. Alex, good morning. Good morning. So the mood's not too good this morning. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, today we should see extension of the decline. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, why do you think that's happening? Is it China manufacturing was in contractionary mode, but just barely under 50. And it may be that the official one, because that was the uh, flash one from HSBC mm. and market, maybe the official one is slightly positive. Yeah, but I think the overall mood is still um, very, very cautious towards China. Right now, um, although we see some liquidity injection by the PBOC, but uh, the point is uh, we would have uh, many trust products uh, expire to this year and the rollover problem probably would exist and people are, are very nervous about that. Probably that as a cost degree, cost sentiment to, uh, among the manufacturing sector as well. So the trust products you referred to, that's where people are not being able to get too much in the, in the bank with their deposits. Uh, they buy these trust products from firms in the shadow banking sector and you get a higher um, yield. You get maybe five, six, seven, eight percent. Uh, and you have to ex- uh, understand that there's more risk with that. And now we see the risk coming um, to bear, don't we? We see a few products that yep. may go bust. Oh, yeah. I think uh, the first one actually may go bust that would, be, would expire quite, quite fast. So uh, people are, are looking uh, at that. Because uh, if this one bust, I think that people would be very nervous about the the transport on which uh, sung originally. So um, the rollover of the whole um, 
shadow banking's product probably would be quite difficult if we see any any negative news coming out. So that is the major problem. I think um, not all the trust products are, are that bad, but I think uh, anyone anything happening probably would be exaggerated. I think. So we see that little drop in manufacturing uh, weighing in as well. And do you think that that is caused by weakness in the West or weakness at home in China? I think there is a weakness at home. Uh, export probably had, had picked up, uh, but I think the problem is the operation in China is not that easy these days because of the rising RMB and the rising um, human resources cost. So that's why I think the confidence level actually uh, uh, is, a, is is not, not is, is is low. So do you think that um, we say goodbye to the 23,000 level for the Hang Seng Index? Uh, we're now at 22,733 and we move lower from here. Yeah, we will move lower from here. Probably we will see um, an extension of the, of the kind and um, probably we would go towards the uh, 22,200 level. Uh, but I think uh, we probably would, would, would not be too bad as well because um, over, overseas market are Sentiment actually are, are still okay, despite the correction overnight. Actually, U.S. stocks are, are quite resilient after the reports uh, of earnings of uh, several uh, big firms. So we've seen the Dow down two point six percent from the peak. Uh, some people keep saying, you know, we deserve a ten percent correction there. Uh, and you know, with some of these weaker numbers now, the jobs mm. report not good, China manufacturing not particularly good. But you can counter that with better manufacturing in Europe and a little bit. Uh, of a pickup there in Europe. Um, so it seems like you're not so negative uh, either. Oh, yeah, I'm not too negative, especially towards uh, the U.S. market and the Europe market. I think that this year the major theme is uh, recovery over uh, there. So that, I think, would help. And also uh, we are seeing uh, the winner-take-all situation in many um Sectors. So, uh, US yeah, that's and, the clip we played from Nouriel Rabini earlier. Yeah, right. So, you think the winners? This is good stock picking. Then the winners win, and the losers struggle a little bit. So, you sell that stock and you buy the winners. Yeah, right. And uh, many winners actually are in the U.S. And so that's why the market over there would be more bullish. But don't you think, um, Alex? That uh, oh, and sometimes coach uh, my colleagues don't mm. start a question like that. So let me ask you this: um, There, there is this thinking out there that mm. with the tapering of the bond buying by the Fed looming, mm-hmm. if you see weak economic reports, that's going to be bad for stocks. Stocks can mm-hmm. handle a nicely improving economy with the taper, uh, but they can't handle the taper if the economy is slowing. Yeah, right. Uh, I think that's that's true. But right now, I think the the point is that we are only having a one um, minor setback in the U.S. economic data so far. Okay. So people seeing that as a as an outliner. So the next. Uh, uh, employment report would be very important. But I think in the meantime, the sentiment will not be too bad. Okay, Alex, thanks very much. Uh, well, I, actually, before you go, what's your single best investment idea? Uh, I think still buying U.S. I think that this year I like uh, the cloud computing uh, concept, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it's one of the reasons that IBM struggled and one of the reasons that Microsoft came in with such strong earnings this morning. So, Okay, Alex, thanks very much for joining us here, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Alex Wong, Director of Asset Management at Ample Capital.
Well, Tesla Motors says that it will sell the Model S sedan in China at 734,000 yuan or 121,280 US dollars. The price puts the car in the same bracket as Volkswagen's Audi S5 sedan and BMW's 5 Series GT sedan. It is, though, 50% more expensive than what a Tesla would set you back in the United States. The billionaire founder Elon Musk, though, seems to say that he's pricing much cheaper in China than other luxury makers. If you look at something like a BMW 7 Series or Audi A7 or A8, the, the price, uh, you know, compared to Model S, they're comparably priced in the U.S., so they're you know, pretty close. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, in, in China, uh, the, the premium car makers um, literally get double or triple the profit right. uh, per car that they get in the U.S., um, and all, I mean, they're all basically colluding um, to, to have, have the prices be at that level. Um, so, uh, but, but the Tesla the policy actually always has been to charge the same amount in every country. Mm-hmm. You know, adding only whatever costs are imposed by that country, such as customs and you know sales tax, that kind of thing. Um, but I, I actually got a lot of pressure from. Um, from investors to uh, to do the same thing, um, and whenever I talk about China, people would say, "Oh, yeah, you can make so much more money per car in China than you can in Europe or the U.S." Um, but that's just not how we work at Tesla. I don't think it's the right strategy for the long term. Um, I just don't think ripping off customers is a is a good long long term strategy. Wow! So he gets in a lot of shots of the other luxury car makers there. I apologize for the length of that clip and also the weak quality, but quite astonishing some of the comments that he made there. Uh, but he says that the price of a Model S in China is actually the same as the price of a Model S in the United States. Uh, however, it needs to include what uh, he says are unavoidable taxes, customs duties, and transportation costs. And a statement from Tesla said, if we were to follow standard industry practice, we could get away with charging twice as much for the Model S in China as we do in the United States. And they're actually charging 50% more. Tesla stock, by the way, up 294 at 181.50. The stock more than quadrupled last year. Well, let's go back to Davos now. And we've got our guest waiting in the wings. And uh, if you'll just wait for another moment, I wanted to play you a few more comments. First, one from Ian Bremmer, again at the Eurasia Group, about troubles in emerging markets. And the fact is that with all of these elections in 2014, um, with the concerns that growing middle classes have serious demands on their governments, those governments mm-hmm. are not very well equipped to meet, you're going to see more instability, more uncertainty, more volatility and lower growth. And Professor Nouriel Rabini from NYU Stern says the United States will do OK, but not great. Well, I would say that even in the U.S. there's going to do better than other advanced economies who have some fundamental problems. Uh, There's still gridlock in Congress that implies that we're not going to be maybe having immigration reform. We have to do structural tax reform. We have eventually to reform entitlements from Social Security to Medicare. So I don't see much progress occurring. There's also regulatory uncertainty in the United States. There's issues with Obamacare. So I see U.S. economic growth going to 2.5%, but not in the camp of those who believe we're going to go to 3.5% or more. We say good morning to Kevin Delaney, co-founder of financial website Quartz, on the line from Davos. Kevin, good morning. 
Hi, good morning. Yeah, so I guess I've been playing a lot of clips this week, people talking about inequality, about job creation, about growth, and about some troubles in the emerging markets with tapering. Um, how do you find covering a story like Davos? Well, you know, Davos is really complex to cover because there are many, many sessions, many, many people. It's a, it's a smallish but very cold, icy and high-security Swiss town where you find yourself going through a magnetometer and taking your coat and, and uh, emptying your wallets every block or two, it feels like. Uh, and so, uh, so while it feels like there is a coherent story coming out of here, there are actually many, many conversations going on, uh, but many interesting conversations. And, and um, are there a lot the of these... You mentioned I was just going to ask, I, I saw your piece briefly, uh, a lot of it uh, Chatham House rules... Yeah, so the the official ground rules for the forum are that it falls under Chatham House rules. It means that uh, essentially that it's on background. You're not allowed to report who said what. Um, there are some sessions that are on the record, and journalists like myself are constantly asking uh, people, can that be on the record? Can that be on the record? Um, there are hundreds and hundreds of media here, so uh, it's not like it's uncovered. But there is that funny quirk that that officially uh, the discussions unless noted otherwise are are on background and how would you say uh, the mood is among the political and economic elite I think the mood is actually pretty optimistic relative to recent years there everyone feels like the uh, the world has come through the dark days of the, fi- of the financial crisis and they're reflecting more on structural, longer-term problems, generally speaking. So things like employment and what automation in uh, many uh, potential parts of the economy, such as factories, means for employment levels that we should expect. There also actually is a fair amount of focus on some of the crisis areas of the world. Um, and Syria, in particular, there is a... a there's a, a lot of discussion about how to uh, resolve the humanitarian crisis in Syria. George Soros, the investor and philanthropist, hosted a dinner where uh, he traditionally gives a kind of market outlook. And this year he introduced the dinner, introduced Kofi Annan, and said he was turning the dinner over to uh, the topic of Syria. And it, what proceeded was a a bunch of experts who uh, talked about the situation in Syria and discussed the the urgency of uh, a solution and the failure of traditional policy mechanisms so far to, to really address the problem. Quite a bit of attention also given to uh, the Japan Premier Shinzo Abe uh, and how he drew attention to the escalating arms race in Asia. Uh, did you get a chance to uh, talk to people about that? I did, yeah. I was in a session with where he met with a small group of journalists yesterday. What was very striking is that uh, he he noted the risk of an accidental escalation of conflict between Japan and China. This is something we've been we've been talking about and worrying about. And he actually drew a very explicit direct parallel to 1914. He said in 1914, the UK and Germany were very close trading partners. 
but there was so much tension between the two countries that it took a relatively minor incident to spark the First World War. And he drew the comparison to China and Japan, which are very strong training partners, but there's such a high level of tension between them that he worries that a miscalculation uh, could actually uh, lead the tensions to actually ignite into something uh, more more serious and potentially more violent. So that's a risk that, that we and others have been writing about and thinking about, and it was striking that Abe himself uh, seems to be anxious about that. And much was made a day or two before the start of Davos about uh, the Iranian uh, president uh, making an appearance. Uh, uh, did you, was there much that came out of that? Uh, to be honest, I, I didn't actually uh, see too much about what the President Rouhani said. Yeah. So um, he, he actually made a speech that, he gave a speech here this morning. It's the first time that the President of Iran uh, is in Davos in roughly a decade. And uh, he gave a speech in which he pledged Iran's commitment to return to full engagement with the international community and uh, full compliance with any nuclear inspections um, or, or um, you know, related diplomatic requirements. He also focused on the potential of Iran's economy, uh, where he said that within uh, a number of years, Iran had the potential to be one of the top 10 economies in the globe. Um, he, you know, immediately uh, people jumped on his comment saying that they were... Uh, disingenuous, and um, he he stopped short of saying that Iran would recognize Israel, and he said that Iran would not destroy its nuclear centrifuges and asserted Iran's right to have um, civilian nuclear power, which, you know, has been part of the, the complication all along. So um, this speech actually felt like a, a landmark speech for him to come and give, but... Not so much exactly what he said, but merely the fact that he was there, yeah. Okay, okay, Kevin, uh, short on time. Thank you very much. Kevin Delaney, co-founder of Quartz. Briefly here at home, the government's exchange fund brought in investment income of nearly $76 billion last year. That was a rate of return equivalent to 2.7%, down from 4.4% in 2012. Most of the money coming from gains in overseas equities, U.S. stocks having their best year uh, in a long time. Investment in local stocks contributing $10 billion the chief executive of the Monetary Authority, Norman Chan, uh, said that the investment climate this year would depend on the pace of the U.S. central bank gradually reducing stimulus. The global financial environment and investment climate will no doubt be driven by the pace and the scale of the Fed's exit from quantitative easing and the consequential reactions of the U.S. and global interest rates. There remain uncertainties about the sustainability of the economic recovery in the United States and Europe, as well as possible outflow funds from emerging markets, like what we saw in May and June last year. News time now, 25 minutes after 8.
for a bit of fun, look at money and sport, Manchester United has dropped out of the top three in the football rich list for the first time. And Man U stock was down two cents overnight to $14.96, down about $19. As I mentioned in my headlines at the beginning, we've seen a big drop in market cap of Man U, uh, down about three $400 million. Joining us now is Danny Hicks from AFP Sports Direct. Danny, good morning. Good morning, Brian. What, what's happening with Manchester United? Uh, well, it's a, it's a case of the old adage, isn't it, when you invest in anything, that past performance is uh, no guarantee to future returns. And, <laughs> and this is certainly true with Manchester United on the field uh, this year, and it's being reflected in the share price of it. So they're not winning... And, no. and that feeds through the stock price. Well, they're not winning, and they're not winning big time. Uh, they're just out of the League Cup this week on penalties to Sunderland, who are bottom of the Premier League of all teams. They lost in the FA Cup to Swansea. They've only won four out of their six matches uh, this year in 2014. Uh, they've lost five games at home. And, uh, yeah, they're seventh, they're seventh in the table and uh, really six points off the Champions League places. And with Liverpool having a much better goal difference, you could say that's seven points off. They're struggling even to get in the Champions League, which would be an absolute disaster for them. So I mentioned that top three, Real Madrid, Barcelona and Bayern Munich. Uh, first three places in a list that's compiled by Deloitte. Mm-hmm. Uh, Manchester United dropping out of that. Um, maybe they can turn it around, but um, this puts a lot of pressure on the new coach, doesn't it? It puts a lot of pressure pressure on the new coach because uh, the the business model of the owners, the Glazers, uh, who took over in a rather acrimonious takeover a few years ago, they floated 10% of the club in New York, as we talked about, and uh, the shares hit a high of $19.06 when they won the championship uh, under Sir Alex Ferguson, but uh, since then there's been a bit of a sea change, obviously a new coach struggling on the pitch, not many players brought in. There's a bit of light on the horizon in that it looks like they're going to sign Juan Mata from Chelsea, who's a great Spanish midfielder. Um, £37 million deal. But uh, uh, the business model depends on them uh, ha- making uh, only net spending on transfers of around 25 to £30 million pounds a year. Now, this year, they will have topped £60 million and not gone anywhere on the pitch. So the business model is looking a bit shaky. You've got to understand the Glazers basically got into a huge amount of debt to buy the club in the first place. And what they want to do is slice and dice a bit and uh, sh- sell off some shares here and, and get some investment in there to finance their debt. And do, of course, with think- the share price plummeting, that model goes out the window. Yeah, do you think the Glazers, though, bought this um, as, a, as an investment and a moneymaker, or like many sports clubs, do they buy it more for vanity reasons? I think they are investors, first and foremost. Okay. Um, they, they, they have a history in sport, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they're not going to go in and, and buy with their heart. They're going to buy with their head. And uh, they've seen it as a way to make money. I don't think they're panicking just yet because the shares were originally floated at $14 and did initially drop to around $12. And they're, they're trading out fourteen ninety six. But it makes the, uh, as I say, the future model of maybe selling off another 10% of the club or floating it elsewhere. They talked about Singapore in the past and uh, and places like that to float uh, taking advantage of the the kind of the cash rich investors of the far east and and uh, you know if the performance on the pitch is not there then it's very difficult to sell shares in the club how would you say the combined revenues are of the other top clubs uh, not just those three i mentioned but say the top 10 or the top 20 uh, um 
seems that football is as popular as ever. Yeah, and uh, as we've talked about many times before, it's TV rights, really, which is the big driver of revenues uh, in, in the European League, certainly. And, and you look down this rich list, and uh, it is entirely European. Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, number one, two, and three. Manchester United dropped to fourth, but then you've got Manchester City coming in at sixth, Chelsea, Arsenal, seventh, eighth, uh, and the old favourites of Juventus and AC Milan making up the top ten. So, you know, the big clip, the big clubs are still generating this is a this is a list on the revenue they're generating each year and it's huge because they've got huge sponsorship deals and all the rest of it however you know lack of champions league football will see sponsors uh, rethink their, their their commitment to manchester united it will make them harder to buy the top players and uh, you get into a downward spiral which i'm sure uh, both david moyes the manager and the glazers uh, want to arrest as quickly as possible okay danny thanks very much for joining us and by the way happy birthday Thank you very much. <laughs> Danny Hicks, I won't say how old, but uh, he's the seasoned editor, a seasoned editor of Sports <laughs> Direct at AFP. Okay, so many thanks to Danny. We look at uh, the money in sport, the business of sport, every couple of weeks on a Friday here on Money for Nothing. The weather today, mainly cloudy. Uh, some cool temperatures in the morning, as has been the pattern. Sunshine expected during the day. Maximum temperature about 18 degrees. That's about what we've been having. Lots of sunshine, though. Temperatures rising further in the next couple of days. Current temperature about 13 degrees. The news coming up next, and then back chat. A31, the news with Samantha Butler. The United States Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel has ordered a high-level review of the State of American nuclear forces after a series of embarrassing incidents. A defense spokesman, Rear Admiral John Kirby, said Mr. Hagel would also summon military leaders to the Pentagon to discuss what he called legitimate concerns over the stewardship of the department. The BBC's Joan Soley reports from Washington. After a slew of embarrassing incidents in recent months, Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel has ordered an independent review of the U.S. Nuclear Missile Force to examine the problems that threaten to jeopardize public trust, according to the department. 